Oh. Well, I definitely believe that the Lord is here, don't you? I definitely believe that as we open our mouths and as we sing praise to God, that something happens. That when God is honored, when He is in this place, I believe that there is sometimes an unusual gathering of the Spirit when He just continues to pour Himself out and teach us more and where He is honored and lifted up and magnified. And so I don't want to say, hey, the worship is over. We're going to something different. No, the worship continues because now we get to open God's holy word where there are no errors that we can study this because it's worthy of being studied. And so tonight we're going to be in the book of Romans, chapter 5. If you have your Bibles, that's great. If not, it'll be on the screen in just a few minutes. But here's the bottom line of where we've been going over the past few weeks. We've been going through this book of the Bible called Romans, and we believe that it is one of the most deep passages in all of the Bible. And so tonight, some of the things that we're going to talk about are not shallow things. But here's what I know about this generation, about your generation, about my generation, is that we no longer are interested in thinking about or learning or worshiping shallow things. Because think about it this way. If God is only interested in the shallow end of the pool, then what really makes God that great? Because my son that's four years old, he can play in a kiddie pool, but he hasn't done anything. He hasn't grown up. He hasn't matured. He's a four-year-old. What has he really done? If God is just interested in wading that deep, that's not really that impressive. But if God has some depths that we can go to, that for some are mysterious, for some are unknowing, that for some that we actually have to turn on our brains, I'm so thankful we have a God that is both completely understandable in the sense that we can understand who he is. We'll never understand everything about him. But he provides some mystery and he asks us to actually turn on our brain when we come to him. And so as we come to this passage, I was thinking about uh, two friends of mine that I had growing up in high school. And most of you have probably had a similar situation. So I had two friends in high school. One of the ones was a guy that was several years older than me. And one was a girl that was my age in my same graduating class. It just so happened that we were in the same church together and that God allowed our families to grow up together. And so as I was growing up, I looked up to the older brother in the family because he was somebody that I wanted to emulate. He wanted to go into the ministry, similar to what I felt called to do. He, he loved people. He loved the study and the memorization of God's Word. He loved explaining to people what the Bible had to say. He was living his life in such a way that God would be honored and would be glorified. He wasn't perfect, but he was on a trajectory of growth in his spiritual walk with God. And so I admired him. I looked up to him as someone several years older than me. But for his sister, who was my age, we had grown up together since middle school. And some of you may have seen this throughout different seasons of your life, 
when something significant changes in their life, like going from middle school to high school or high school to college or some significant season shift, they change. You know what I'm talking about? And so somebody that I was super close with in middle school, and she was growing in the Lord, and she was involved in our church, and she was wanting to do incredible things with God. When she moved into high school, things changed, and not for the better. Things changed for the worse. She became very involved with different guys in and out of very um, sexualized relationships. She was not living her life for the Lord. She developed some really bad and terrible and dangerous habits in her life. At this point today, she has been through a couple of different marriages. And her life is just in a completely different place than her brother. And you probably know friends that are that way who grew up and they used to be the same, but now they're in two totally different places. Relatives grew up in the same place, but are now in two totally different places in their life. It's interesting to see the difference in the life of two people. And tonight, we are going to see what I believe is the greatest contrast of two people in all of human history. It's a contrast between the first man, Adam, and the ultimate man, which was Christ himself. And so tonight, we want to dig into this scripture, Romans chapter 5, and we're going to contrast these two men and what happened in their life. And so, as an umbrella statement for the first man who was Adam, if you're taking notes on your sheet of paper, here's what you need to know. It was that one man's sin brought all death. One man's sin brought all death. We're going to start reading Romans chapter 5, verse 12. This is what it says. It says, therefore, just as sin entered the world through one man and death through sin, and in this way death came to all people because all sinned, to be sure sin was in the world before the law was given. But sin is not charged against anyone's account where there is no law. Nevertheless, death reigned from the time of Adam to the time of Moses, even over those who did not sin by breaking a command, as did Adam, who is a pattern of the one to come. Now, some of you are wondering, what in the world did that just say? Like, what in the world? There were so many words, so many concepts that I did not understand. Well, stay with me, because I want to break it down into bite-sized chunks. Here's chunk number one that we see from this passage. Adam didn't create sin. Well, how do we know that? It says that sin entered the world through one man. But he says sin was in the world before the law was given. Here, here's, here's what Paul did not say in this passage. He did not say that sin was original to this first man, Adam himself. He didn't say that he created it, but that sin entered the world through him. In other words, this is the concept. That Adam, that through Adam, he brought sin into the world for all of mankind. So we believe in the Bible that it says that sin originated with Satan. Sin originated when he, as an angel of God, rebelled against a holy God because he wanted to be greater and he wanted to be worshipped. And because of that desire, sin was original with him, and he was cast down out of the legion of angels onto the earth. 
And so you'll see in the opening pages of the Bible that the serpent, Satan himself, was the tempter of Adam and Eve, the first two people. So they didn't create sin, they simply ushered in sin for all of mankind. Second thing we need to see from this passage is that Adam, because of sin, he was held responsible. What do I mean by that? Well, here's the deal. What we believe is that in creation, God created the man first, and then he created the woman, Eve, his wife, to be the ultimate companion to him. To be the ultimate helpmate, the ultimate completeness of him. And so we believe that in the Garden of Eden, God gave Adam and Eve complete freedom. They had freedom to do literally anything they wanted to do except for one thing, which was to eat the fruit from one specific tree. Now, according to Scripture, in what we call the fall, Genesis chapter 3, when the serpent came to them, tempted them, and said, hey, listen, you really do need to eat that fruit because God knows that if you eat of it, your eyes will be open and you will be more like God. And so Eve took some of that fruit and she bit it, and then she gave some to Adam as well. Now, usually, I don't know about you, but when someone does something first, they are the first people that get in trouble, right? They're the first people that get punished. So if my son Jake pushes my son James, and then James pushes Jake back, guess who I'm going to get on to first? Jake, because he started it all, right? And so, Josh, why in this passage is Adam blamed for something that Eve first did? Why is her name not even mentioned in here? Because, after all, she sinned first. She's the one who gave in to the temptation first. Why wasn't she held responsible? Here's the reason for that. Because God gave the command to Adam directly. And since God gave the command to Adam directly, then he held the responsibility to make sure that not only for himself, but for Eve as well, that they would stay away from that one thing that God said was not right. Third thing you need to know is that death is the ultimate punishment. It doesn't seem like from the first couple of chapters in Genesis that God created man with the intention that he would die. You pick that up? I know that's kind of weird. That's kind of different to think about. But according to this passage right here, man was not created to die. Death only came as the ultimate punishment for what Adam and Eve did. So... If we want to speculate for a minute, I believe that if Adam and Eve would have never sinned and never taken that fruit, that they would still be on this earth. I really believe that. Because death is ultimately regarded as a punishment. And now we know that every single person that walks the planet has to go through the agony somewhere, somehow of dying. That is a surety in life. You know, you think about um, last week, we watched the funeral of a man named Billy Graham, 99 years old. He had preached the gospel for years in stadiums, uh, on television, on the radio. His ministry had been responsible for allowing so many people around the world to hear the incredible gospel message. 
But the truth is, even a man like Billy Graham realized that death was a reality. Because he spoke about it before he died. He said, hey, listen, when you hear about me dying, here's, here's the thing. I've just changed my address. I've just changed my address from being here to being ultimately in heaven with God. But we realize that death is the ultimate punishment. And here's why. Here's why people ultimately die because they have a transmitted disease called sin. They have a transmitted disease called sin. A couple years ago, there was this epidemic called Zika virus that was spreading around like crazy, especially in tropical environments. It was spread by mosquitoes. They would infect you with this specific disease. And the real difficulty or, or problem with this specific disease was that if you were a pregnant mother and if you contracted this disease, the disease would then be transmitted to your unborn child. And because it was transmitted to your unborn child, what would happen is that in the earliest stages of development, it would cause birth defects. And so when that child was born he or she would be born with incredibly difficult circumstances that they faced. Physical abnormalities. Things that, things that would not be easy to have or to deal with, would require multiple surgeries and therapy and, 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 and the like. So I went to that country understanding that there was an epidemic that had been transmitted and it had gone viral in so many different ways, not only in the country of Haiti, but across the whole Caribbean, and it had spread back to the United States, and so one member of our team, while we were there, actually contracted the disease, and so I actually had to call the CDC in Tennessee and let them know, hey, we've got one of the first cases in the state of Tennessee because of our trip to Haiti. They weren't that happy but they dealt with it because that's their job, right? That's not my job. I'm like, yeah, I'm not a doctor. So, um, but here's the thing. The truth is, just like those pregnant mothers could transmit this disease to their unborn child, the truth is that from Adam and Eve on, every single person that has been born was transmitted with a disease that they were born with. And that disease is called sin. And what that means is every single person in this room tonight has a natural inclination towards sin. What's sin? Sin is, sin is missing the mark. Sin is disobeying God. Sin is ultimately evil and it is anti-God. But here's the thing that you need to know. We can't get rid of it. We can't get rid of it on our own. We can't wish it away. We can't try to earn this state of goodness so that we won't ever have to deal with it. No, we are with this disease, and here's the problem. This disease always brings about death. The mortality rate is 100%. You cannot be cured. The problem is all of us in this room were born with that disease. And if that's the end of the story, we're in trouble. I'm just going to tell you. If that's the end of the story, we're in trouble. You're like, man, this, this is not sounding good, Josh. 
this, this is not sounding promising. Because you just told me that we've got an incurable disease. You just told me that it brings about death. If that was the end of the story, if one man's sin brought all death, and that was the only thing that we had to talk about tonight, this would not be a nice message. It would not be encouraging. But luckily, we have something great to talk about. Because we have the opportunity to talk about the other man tonight. And the truth of the matter is that one man's death brought eternal life. And that one man was Jesus himself. So I heard about a story of a lady by the name of Cheryl Anderson. Cheryl Anderson was 32 years old. And she found out that she was pregnant with her husband for the first time. She was overjoyed. She was so excited. You know, I can think back to when my wife and I first heard about us being pregnant for the first time. We were ecstatic. We were so excited. We told our parents. They went nuts, literally crazy. Um, And they still are. But it was such a joyous time in her life. Two months into her pregnancy, though, something very uh, tragic happened. She had a meeting with her doctor, and her doctor said, um, Cheryl, I I just got some test results back, and and I have to tell you something. Um, You have cancer, and it's a very, very aggressive form. And so, Cheryl, here's the deal. I'm just going to lay it out for you here. If we give you radiation and chemotherapy, we believe we can cure you. But in order to do that, we'll have to abort your unborn child. That's the only way this can work. And she said, no. She said, first of all, you're not going to abort my child. And second of all, I'm not going to take the chemotherapy, and I'm not going to take the radiation. In fact, I'm not going to take any painkiller except for one because it has been rated to be the least dreadful for the child. Have the least amount of risk for the child. And as she began to continue on, and she went into her second trimester her body began to break down rapidly, rapidly. And they said, Cheryl, listen, we, we know where this is going. We, we can't even guarantee you that you will be able to live long enough to bring your baby to term. We don't even know if this is going to be possible. And I'm not sure if she was a believer or a Christian or not, but she said, I have faith, I believe that this is going to work out. And I'm not going to do anything to risk the life of that child. Six months into her pregnancy, her doctor came to her and he said, Cheryl, here's the deal. Um, You are not going to live much longer. We have to take the baby today. And she said, then let's do it. 
So they put her under an anesthetic. They did a C-section. They took the baby out. The baby was born healthy. As she came out of the anesthetic, as she began to wake up, they showed her her baby. They were able to say, this baby has been born healthy. But just a couple hours after that, Cheryl passed away. And as I was thinking about the story of Cheryl, what a powerful illustration it is in modern day terminology that one person would risk their life for another. That one person would give their life so that someone else could live. That someone else, that, that she would put it all on the line for her child. And the truth of the gospel is that every single one of us have been that child. Every single one of us has been the recipient of a God who stepped out of comfort, out of high authority, stepped into the world that we know with temptations, with trials, with difficulty, with hurt, with anguish. And that God took on himself the sin of the entire world that was not just physically difficult, but spiritually and emotionally unlike anything that we could ever experience. We cannot experience that pain. We cannot experience or even imagine that weight. But he took it upon himself as a sacrifice for you and for me so that we could have life. So that we could be cured from a disease that was incurable aside from him giving his own life for us. That's an incredible message. And so what this one man, Jesus, did for you and for me is much greater than what that other man, Adam, did to us. You get me? And so just a couple of things to think about tonight. These are great things. That Christ's act to save was greater than Adam's act to destroy. This is a great, great news. Because here what happened, here's what it says in verse 15. It says, the gift, meaning what God has done, is not like the trespass, like what Adam has done. For if the many died by the trespass of one man, how much more did God's grace and the gift that came by the grace of the one man, Jesus Christ, overflow to many? You know how I know that what Christ did to save us is greater than Adam's act to defeat us and to ultimately destroy us? Because it's way easier to kill than it is to bring life. Did you know that? All of us in this room, listen to me, I don't want to get too technical here, but all of us in this room have the ability to take someone else's life. Did you know that? All of us in the room, as weird and as crazy as that sounds, we all have the ability. But can I just tell you in this room, none of us in the room have the ability to truly create life. You say, Josh, um, I'm not sure if you've read the biology textbooks. Bro, I'm not sure if you understand how you got two boys, two sons. 
Don't you realize that you do actually have the ability to create life? Here's the deal. As I work and live and am friends with a ton of young families that are my age, I know tons of young couples who are supplying the same ingredients but don't get the same result. Y'all with me? We're college students here, right? They doing the same thing, but they're not having kids. They want kids. They want to have kids. Some of you, your parents, tried to have kids for a long time before you were born. Some of you have relatives and friends that are trying to have kids right now. They doing what they're supposed to be doing. Here's a question. At some point, we have to begin to realize, hey, hold on. I can't just supply this and ultimately now everything's going to be fine and I'm going to be able to be responsible for creating life. No, we believe that there is something supernatural that happens in the creating of life. And so here's, what, here's the deal. Because Adam tried to destroy our life by what he did, by the sin that he did. But Christ came to give life, to bring us true life, to save our lives from the path that we were on, to save us from an incurable disease. That is much greater, that is much harder, that is much more significant than what Adam did and how thankful and grateful I am to our God, Jesus Christ. The commentator John MacArthur says it better than I ever could. Listen to this. It says, Jesus Christ broke the power of sin and death. But the converse is not true. Sin and death cannot break the power of Jesus Christ. The condemnation of Adam's sin is reversible. The redemption of Jesus Christ is not. The effect of Adam's act is permanent, only if not nullified by Christ. The effect of Christ's act, however, is permanent for believing individuals and not subject to reversal or nullification. We have the great assurance that once we are in Jesus Christ, we are in Him forever. His act to save was greater than Adam's act to destroy. Second thing is this, that Christ's justification was greater than Adam's condemnation. Verse 16, it says, Nor can the gift of God be compared with the result of one man's sin. The judgment followed one sin and brought that word condemnation. But the gift followed many trespasses and brought justification. Now, think about this with me. When Adam and Eve ate the forbidden fruit, that was the only way that they could have sinned at that time. And according to God, they had the freedom to do anything else. But that one act, that one act, no matter how big or how small it seems to us today, had enough of an effect to condemn all of mankind. This shows us how serious God is about sin. But don't miss the second part. The second part is the gift that followed was the gift of rescue and redemption that was offered to all people for all sin. So what Adam did in his one act of sin was not greater than what God had done in providing a justification for anyone who would believe. Third thing is this. Christ made man more like God. Adam made man less like God. 
Here's what I mean by that. Verse 17. For if by the trespass of the one man, death reigned through that one man, how much more for all those who receive God's abundant provision of grace and of the gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. Here's a a, a kind of a summary of what that can mean. You remember that in Genesis chapter 3 when the when the serpent tempts Adam and Eve, he says, here's the temptation. The temptation is, eat that fruit, because if you do, you will be more like God. They ate the fruit, and they did not become more like God. That was a lie. They actually became less like God. They were kicked out of fellowship with God. They had to clothe themselves Because they were scared of God. They had more and more and more of a distance from God. And more and more of a difference from God. By committing that act of sin. But when Jesus came to the earth. He said I realize that there's a separation. That's why I'm here. And I realize that I can enter into mankind. Can become like them yet without sin. And I can provide a way for them to become more and more and more like me. To have a relationship with me. To have fellowship with me. To have the lights on. I'm glad there we go. To, to have a, a fellowship with him. To have a relationship with him. That you and I now, because of Jesus, have the opportunity, listen to me, listen, to be more like God. So whereas Adam intended for us to become more like God, he actually made us less like God. But what Jesus did was actually true. He actually wanted us to become more like God. And he accomplished that, and that is incredible news. Next thing is this. Christ's act of obedience was greater than Adam's act of disobedience. Look at verse 18 and 19. It says, consequently, just as one trespass resulted in condemnation for all people, that's disobedience, so also one righteous act resulted in justification and life for all people. For just as through the disobedience of one man the many were made sinners, so also through the obedience of one man the many were made righteous. Here's the deal. It's, it's, it, it may... It may may seem like this is just a rehashing of some of this. But I want you to see something incredibly important here. Some of you in your life would admit tonight, not in front of everybody, but if you're honest with yourself, that you have not lived a life of obedience to God. That there are a lot of things in your life that you're not proud of. That there's a lot of things in your life that you realize you have turned your back on God. You've said to Him, I'm going to do it my way. I don't need you. I don't want you in my life. And you have intentionally disregarded his plan. So the question is, does that disregard disqualify you from life with God? The answer according to this passage is no. Because the great news of the gospel is, when we were the most disobedient, Christ was still obedient to the Father and came down and hung on the cross and died for you and died for me. 
So that even people who are incredibly disobedient, even people who have turned their back on God, even people who have spat in his face, even people who have made fun of him and mocked him, can come into a right relationship with him because his obedience is greater than their disobedience. Y'all with me? Isn't that good news? Someone say yes. Okay, good. So here's the deal. What have you done? What you have done may define your past, but it doesn't have to define your future. That is important. What you have done in your past may define what has happened in your past and may define who you were, but it does not define your future. God defines that, and because his obedience is greater than your disobedience, he wins. Last thing, God's grace is greater than our sin. Verse 20, the law was brought in so that the trespass might increase. But where sin increased, grace increased all the more. So that just as sin reigned in death, so also great grace might reign through righteousness to bring eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Now, these two verses have brought a lot of confusion over the centuries. Why, Josh, would it be okay to bring in the law if bringing in the law brings about more sin? Wouldn't you think that we just shouldn't have even brought the law in because we didn't want more sin? That would kind of make logical sense, right? But here's the deal. I just believe that bringing in the law brought to light the fact that there was more sin. It helps us to realize the rebellious disease that we were birthed with, that we talked about before. When I was in high school... Um, our church took a trip to Florida, and students would stay in host homes, okay? Very, very popular to stay in host homes, right? It saved us a lot of money on hotel bills. So we went to a host home, and one particular host home, their leader, the host home leader, told one of my friends, he said, hey, listen, I'm so glad you're here tonight, but I just need to tell you one thing. Um, whatever you do, do not look under the bed. What's the first thing you think you did? Look under the bed, you know? Some of you are like that with stop signs. You know, it's like, no, going to keep on going. I'm not calling any names, but, you know, someone in here may have had that struggle recently. I don't know. But uh, here's the deal. Here's the deal. Having the law actually brings out the fact that we are by nature rebellious people. That we are people that uh, are born with a sin nature and we still got problems. But here's the good news. Where sin increases, grace increases all the more. And God's grace is greater to cover any single thing that you do. Can I just be real with you just for a moment? Listen very, very carefully. This is very important. Every single person in this room struggles with sin. Can we just say that? Every single person in this room struggles with sin. Every single person has a habit that they would not want to admit tonight. Me included. 
every single person gets frustrated with themselves when they continually fall into the same trap. Man, didn't I know that would be there? Didn't I overcome that temptation by now? Didn't I learn the first time, the second time, the third time, the 30th time? Didn't I learn then? It's frustrating. And it's difficult. But here's the good news. That tonight, for every single one of us, God promises that He will cover our sin with His grace if we will accept it. We don't have to earn it, by the way. We couldn't ever earn it. We don't deserve it. We could not ever deserve it. It is given to us freely. We just have to accept it. And that, listen to me, no matter what you've done, God's grace is greater. No matter who you've been, God's grace is greater. No matter what valley you are in right now, listen to me, God's grace is greater. Remember that story from the very beginning of the message where I talked about those two people. One that ended up a family man, a pastor, the other of which is still trying to find her way in life. Well, that guy that I greatly respect and greatly admire just about a month ago lost his seven-year-old seven son in a tragic situation where literally he was playing out in the yard and all of a sudden he collapsed. They took him to the doctor, and the doctor said, his heart is not working right. He will not make it past today. Gone like that. Through that incredible valley and difficulty, here's what happened. This guy who I know and I respect, he says something like this. That even in the deepest valley, even at the darkest hour, God's grace is still greater. So if it's personal sin in your life, listen to me. Let's tonight get that at the feet of the Lord and say, God, would you cover this with your grace? Would you? And if you ask him to do that, he will. Some of you are going through one of the most difficult situations in your life. And it's disassociated from any sin. It's just a, a struggle. It's just a trial. It's just a terrible time and terrible season in your life. And here's what I have to tell you tonight. That because of one man's death, you can have eternal life. And that one man provides grace for you in the midst of your most difficult hour. This is the great, incredible news of the gospel. That the difference between these two men, Adam and Christ, could not be any more opposite. But we don't have to live our lives only for what Adam has done. But we have the opportunity to live in the reality that Christ has given us something that is amazing, truly amazing. So here's what I want us to do as we close tonight. I'm going to ask the band to come back up. And I'm going to just ask you if you'll close your eyes and bow your heads tonight. And the only reason that we're doing this is so that you can get alone with the Lord.
so that you can just focus on him. I know a lot of things have been said tonight. And I know God has an incredible way of speaking directly into your life. It might not be out of my mouth. It might be something that I didn't say. It might be a verse of scripture. It might be a story I told. It might be something completely different and off the wall. But I really do believe that if you are listening, that God was speaking. And so tonight, I just want to give you an opportunity right now. And I want to talk to two different groups of people in the room. So just bear with me just for a minute. I want to talk to a first group of people that tonight you say, Josh, for the first time, I am beginning to realize what the gospel is all about. That the gospel starts with bad news. And the bad news is that one man's sin brought death to all people. Death because of sin. And I realized that I was born with a sin nature. And I realized that different pieces of my life are not honoring and glorifying to God. But tonight, Josh, I have realized that to me, that's where the story has always stopped. And I have not accepted what God has done for me. I have not accepted the grace. I have not accepted forgiveness. I've not asked God to change my life. I've not turned my life over to him. I have not surrendered. And you say, tonight, I want to do that. I want to give you an opportunity right now to begin a relationship with the God that I talked about. A real God. One true God. And what I'm going to do is I'm just going to lead you through a prayer. Now, I have to tell you this. This prayer is not a magic spell. <laughs> There's nothing magical about these words. But just as I went to an altar and got married to my wife and confessed to her some significant vows, and those sealed our relationship for the rest of our earthly lives, I believe that God asks us to do the similar thing with Him. And so, if that's your desire to begin a relationship with Jesus tonight, and you don't have one, you can just pray right now where you're seated. You don't have to pray out loud. You don't have to grab a microphone or anything like that. You can just pray silently in your heart. Just talk to Him and say something to Him like this. Dear God, I realize that I'm a sinner. I realize that I do not have a relationship with you. But tonight, as I have heard your word, I realize my need for you. And so tonight, God, I'm going to ask you to forgive me of my sins. And to save me. To make me different. To change my life forever. Jesus, tonight, I surrender to the one man whose death brought eternal life to anyone who would believe. I'm going to ask every head bowed, every eye closed. I'm looking around, but I, I just want to see, is there anybody tonight that prayed that? Just raise your hand right now. Anybody who prayed that tonight? Anybody? Anybody in the room tonight?
want to talk to a second group of people tonight. So it's people tonight who they realize that they're Christians, they realize that they're believers, but tonight they haven't been living like it. They've been living in sin, not in the grace that God provides. They've been living in defeat and not victory. They've been living where they're always sulking and not where they're victorious. Not where they have the power to overcome from the Holy Spirit. And so tonight, you just need somebody to pray for you. You feel like you need strength from the Lord. You need a fresh start tonight. And so, is there anybody in the room tonight, you just say, hey, pray for me on that. I know I'm a Christian. Anybody? Yep. Who else? Yep. All across the room, people raising their hands. I'm just going to pray for you right now. You can put your hands down. I just want to pray for you. I'm going to ask everybody in the room, if your hand wasn't raised, hey, pray pray for someone. You don't have to know who raised their hand. Just say, I want to pray for anybody tonight who raised their hand. I want to pray for what they're going through. God, I pray for those that just raised their hand, that need a fresh start, that maybe aren't living like they should be. And so tonight, I just pray that you would change them from the inside out, that you would help them to realize the reality of the gospel. That is, it starts with bad news, but it certainly doesn't end there. That you have provided a new life, that you have provided a new start, that you have provided your Holy Spirit to guide and convict us, that you comfort us, That right now, God, I believe you are praying for us to the Father on our behalf. So Jesus, tonight, we want to say thank you for who you are, just like we started the whole night. We are overwhelmed at who you are. God, words are not enough. God, we are so overcome with this idea tonight that we are so undeserving of all the things that we talked about, and yet you still give them to us, and you give them in abundance. You give them to us in extravagance, and God, we just want to say to you tonight in response, thank you, thank you, thank you. So I pray now as we continue to respond that you would work and move as only you can, and it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Over these next few minutes, here's what we're going to do. We're going to have a time of response. If that means you need to stand and sing, do that. If that means you need to come and you need to kneel on one of these steps and pray, that's fine. If you need to grab a friend and say, hey, I need to talk to you about something. I I believe God is, is telling me something, and I just need someone to help hold me accountable tonight. Grab somebody. Tell somebody about it. If you want to come talk to me, I'll be in the back. There's something going on in your life something that's happening. I want to talk to you. I'll be here for as long as I need to be here after the service. So you don't have to come up right now, but listen. Whatever God calls you to respond in this time, hey, let's do it. But let's also celebrate our incredible God that we have, that we serve, that we worship. As Spencer and the band leads, you respond.